Hello, this is Chris Robinson, writer and producer of the Forbidden Diary audio drama. I have Jim Zobel with me today. Jim is the archivist at the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial in Norfolk, Virginia, one of the premier World War II museums in the United States. If you're in Norfolk, be sure to visit this fascinating museum. Thanks for joining me, Jim. Thanks for having me. So the last three episodes in season two deal mostly with guerrilla activity in Baguio and peripherally Luzon, the Philippines' main island. Let's start with MacArthur. Where is he and what is he doing during the last half of 1942? Well, MacArthur's forces are heavily involved with the campaign in Papua New Guinea. July of 1942, the United States had made the decision that they were going to, after the battles of the Coral Sea and Midway, made the decision they were going to land troops in Guadalcanal, and MacArthur was supposed to push up to the north coast of Papua New Guinea. The thing is, the Japanese had landed there first in July of 1942, and they started making their way over the 13,000-foot Owen Stanley Mountains, and they're trying to capture that Port Moresby that we talked about in the last episode. Moresby has seven airfields. It's the key place for the Allied drive in the New Guinea area for MacArthur. So when the Japanese land, they start throwing Papua New Guinea constabulary, then they throw in Australian militia. And then they'll throw in the Australian regular troops and the American regular troops. So by the end of December 1942, MacArthur's forces, the Australians and the Americans, have the Japanese bottled up on the north coast of Papua New Guinea at a place called Buna Gona Sanananda. This is a very deadly battle. There's no really heavy equipment for each side. It's World War I fighting with uh, the Japanese holed up in these coconut bunkers controlling the high ground. And MacArthur's forces are in a death lock with them, like the Marines are with the Japanese. Japanese on Guadalcanal. By January, they'll clear that up, and then MacArthur will be ready to start driving north through New Guinea. So the end of 1942, prospects for the Allies are really starting to look up in the Pacific. And he's pretty much out of the picture in terms of guerrilla activity or helping them at this time. Well, in November of 1942, we had talked in the last episode, MacArthur got that radio message from Guillermo Nakar who was a Philippine soldier, Philippine scout, and he was up in the northern part of Luzon around Baguio. And he got captured right after that, but MacArthur knew, okay, there's still forces that are operating there. And he wanted to find out what was going on because they didn't have radio contact with anybody else. And so MacArthur sent the Philippine hero, Jesus Villamor, He had been awarded the Distinguished Service Cross in the early part of the war for shooting down some Japanese planes. And they put him into the island of Negros with a radio to find out what's going on with guerrillas. The thing is, is Villamor is so famous, he can't go anywhere. Everybody knows, you know, who he is immediately. So he's pretty much holed up on this mountain in Negros, and he can't really do anything or go anywhere. But they're starting to get those inroads into the Philippines. And December of 42, Macario Peralta, who's a guerrilla leader on Panay, he'll gain radio contact with MacArthur's headquarters. They start broadcasting just in the clear, and radio station KFS in San Francisco picks them up, tells the War Department, War Department tells MacArthur, and then they get a secure connection with Peralta. Same thing will happen with Furtick. This guy, Charlie Smith, he was a mining engineer on Masbate, had gone down to Mindanao working with the forces. When surrender came, he was like, I ain't surrendering. And he outfitted a sailboat and sailed 3,000 miles to Australia, even though he'd never been on a sailboat before. And when he gets to Australia, he gives them all the information about Fertig on Mindanao and gives them a way to contact 
Fertig's people. And that's how guerrilla contact will start with them. So by the end of 1942, they're starting to gain pretty good inroads, early inroads into the guerrilla activity in the, in the Philippines. And they're going to set up what they call the Philippine subsection in the Allied Intelligence Bureau in MacArthur's headquarters. And they'll start dealing specifically with guerrillas in the Philippines. Natalie's writing, it is said that somebody outside camp hears broadcasts nearly every week in Tagalog, Ilocano, Visayan, and Ibanag from the U.S. to encourage the Philippine Islands. How is that happening? How's that? Well, I know that um, not in 42, but a little bit after that, probably about uh, spring of 1943, there's a guy named Fritz Marquardt, and he works with the Office of War Information. Now, Office of War Information was kind of like the propaganda branch, the OSS, you know, Office of Strategic Service. They were the ones that, you know, secured secret information. But OWI came out to MacArthur's headquarters to help with propaganda war, psy war. Well, Marquardt knew MacArthur pretty well. And he gets out there, and there had been a, a previous OWI guy that came out there, and he was under the understanding that I'm going to be MacArthur's right-hand man, and I'm going to be with him all the time. And MacArthur was like, just get out of here. I don't want to deal with you. And Marquardt knows MacArthur's like that. And so when he gets out there, he's like, look, you tell me what I need to do. I'll help out. MacArthur's like, great. You got a problem? Come to me. Otherwise, I don't want to hear from you. You know, you do your job, make it good. So Marquardt's the guy that puts together that voice of America. And they start broadcasting by shortwave into the Philippines. I know that that will happen about spring of 1943. Now, the Tagalog and the Philippine broadcasts, I don't know about. However, they would have known about all the guerrilla activity of Walter Cushing, who's up there in northern Luzon, who's doing a lot of guerrilla activity, attacking Japanese columns, things like that. He'll eventually get killed by the Japanese. Japanese will wipe out all those early guerrilla commands. Claude Thorpe, had been an, uh, an American on baton that got sent out on a secret mission to, to watch over Clark Field. Uh, when the surrender happens, he'll start a small group. He's going to get captured uh, and killed. You've got Ralph Prager, a 26 Cavalry guy. He's going to set up a guerrilla command up there around Baguio. He's got that radio that uh, Nakar will get. He's going to get captured. He'll get killed. Hugh Strawn, same thing, captured, killed. All these early guys, Moses, Everybody's going to get caught and wiped out up on Luzon. And it, the only guy who's really going to make it is the Volkman Command of way north. And that's because they just hide out, you know, and they build an organization, but they they see what the jet, what's the deal is. And then Roger Lapham, who's big in the middle, and all these Filipino bands will, will join with the Americans because we'll have contact with a lot of different people. And so it's a, still kind of like that looking to them, but, the, you know, the radio, the Guerrilla information, I think in those early days, a lot of it's because you know, all these Filipinos broadcasting, they know what Cushing's doing because it's widely known by everybody. And that's why the, the Japanese really make that move on Luzon, early 43. That's probably what Natalie was writing about. But these yeah. guys, these early guys, Cushing, she wrote a lot about him. They were, they were heroic characters. They were cowboys. <laughs> oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. my sense is that they got people behind, oh, yeah, we can fight this. Well, you know, in times like that, there's going to be a lot of people that want to do something and they don't know what to do. And then all of a sudden, here's this guy acting on it. And they're like, okay, I want to be with him. I want to help them. And so that's the way a lot, a lot of it will happen. You know, and a lot of these guys are going to be former, you know, the, 
The Japanese paroled all the Filipino soldiers in January of 43. Now, over 30,000 of them die in Camp O'Donnell, but then they do parole all of them. And a lot of these guys are going to join guerrillas. A lot of them are going to be a part of it. So uh, the, the Japanese made the own mo- their own monster. Yeah, and according to Natalie, or in her sphere, the Japanese were spooked by them. Oh, sure. They don't want to go in the jungle. It's like we were talking about the other day. You got the Igorots, the Ifugao, you got the Edda. And these people are tribal people. You know, they're going to chop your head off <laughs> if, you, if you get in their area. So, yeah, the Japanese don't want to go in the middle of anything. Down on Mindanao, I don't know how to pronounce it, but Tamparag or something like that, the Japanese went against these, you know, Islamics that were around Lake Lanao. And I think a, a team of about 200 went in to say what's what, and they got slaughtered to a man. So, no, they do not want to go in the jungle after anybody. That's why they stick to the roads and the towns and everything else. Yeah, and I'm sure that those stories circulated quickly among the Japanese soldiers. Oh, sure. Yeah, Bamboo Telegraph, boy. Let's talk about the guerrilla tactics. They were outgunned, outmanned. So it was just harassment and interdiction, right? Yeah. I mean, they want, you know, they want to do something. They're soldiers, and you know, that's, that's what they do. Once these, all these elements get in touch with MacArthur, though, MacArthur's like, lay low. All I want is intelligence. All I want is information. I don't want you guys going crazy because when you do, the Japanese just go in and wipe out a village. All the guerrillas, they depend on food support from those villages. And when they start blowing up things and do what, the Japanese just go into a village and put a bag over one guy's head and say, point out everybody who's a gorilla, you know, or supporting the gorillas, and then they kill everybody. So, I mean, that's when, when MacArthur gets control of them, he's like, don't be, you know, going crazy anymore, like Cushing was, like uh, they did down at Butuan, you know, in the, in the early days. And he just wants information, and he'll start supplying them with weapons, but he's like, don't just hide them away, wait till we come back, and when we come back, then you can explode. But right now, all I want is information. And that's why those guys all get wiped out so early and, you know, up on Luzon, because they were, we got to fight, we got to do something. So they all get, you know, wiped out. Wasn't MacArthur, his troops had the least amount of casualties. He was a very careful planner, wasn't he? In certain areas, yeah. I mean, uh, in New Guinea, definitely. Uh, but the thing is, is in, in uh, January of 1944, they captured every single code book the Japanese had. And so they were reading their mail for the last year and a half of the war. Code breaking shortens the war in the Pacific by two or three years, most definitely. And the Navy was very good at it early on. And once the Army gets all these code books at, after the side door landing, that's really what causes least casualty rates. Because MacArthur knows where all the Japanese are. So it's like, I'm just going to bounce around him. That's that, you know, bypassing uh, strategy that he uses in New Guinea for those, you know, last, that last year in New Guinea, he knows where everybody is. Where are they getting their weapons and supplies? Well, a lot of it's, you know, been cached since the war. A lot of it came from the people that were unsurrendered. You know, they took everything they could. They find things and that's the way they'll work it. It's not until, you know, the thing is, is while MacArthur starts supplying the Southern Islands with materials, uh, 19... 19- 43, really submarines start coming in pretty heavily. They really don't get to Luzon until 1944. You know, the preponderance of Japanese soldiers are on Luzon. Uh, and really, they've got no understanding of the guerrilla operations up there until about 1944. And that's when they'll get a hold of, you know, Volkman, Lapham, Anderson, Ramsey, all these people. And that's just because some of the people down south, like Peralta and Andrews on, on Negrus, they have contacts in Luzon 
and they're they're working with these people, you know. But it's not until like summer of 1944 that the Americans start sending in a lot of submarines to Luzon to land supplies and things like that. But in the meantime, wealthy Filipinos are contributing sure. stuff stolen from the Japanese. There's some interesting people. There were a lot of very, very brave Filipinos. There's a lot of espionage going on. The, the Filipinos were so heroic. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, it's like we were saying earlier, you know, the Americans owed everything to them. You know, any, any American guerrilla that survives a war, they owe it to Filipinos. Yeah, they did. Absolutely. No, no doubt. Let's talk about the Kempe Tai. From what Natalie wrote, the guerrillas seemed to cause an uptick in interrogations, and that was done, at least in Natalie's world, by the Kempe Tai. What was the Kempe Tai? Was it like the German Gestapo, only it was army instead of police running it? What? Yeah, it was. It was you know Japanese military police. These guys, they've been in operation for quite a while. What's well, quite a while? Well, I mean, they've been operating in Japan since the late 1920s, early 1930s, they go in everywhere that the Japanese go. I think the, what's the, Nagahama or something like that, or is, is the guy that that runs it in Manila? It's something like that. That might not be the name of the colonel, but very active throughout, very active in trying to figure out operations in various prison camps throughout, and as well as trying to get guerrillas. They have their military prison right there on the other half of Bilibid. Got the mil- U.S. military prisoners on one side, and the other half is the Camp Thai prison. And that's where they're going to bring Prager, Thorpe, Moses, all these Americans that they're going to capture and eventually execute. Was it Japanese only, or did they recruit people? Well, I'm sure they did. Yeah, I mean, you've got informants everywhere, and that's one of the main things people have to look out for. Any guerrilla that got captured, it was usually because they had talked to the wrong Filipino. There's a character in the story. He's not a character. He's a real person. They called him Mukibo. He was an Imperial Army intelligence officer. Would that have been Kempe Tai? Yeah, I mean it could be. I'm not real sure. I don't. I don't know about him, so I can't. I can't really. Speak yeah, on him. but I mean that wouldn't be a, a an unreasonable. Well, I mean you've got intelligence people that work for the army, you know, that are working against the Americans, and then you've got intelligence people that are kind of like watching all the Filipinos and whatnot. Right. And so what was their charter? Did they do anything? It sounds like, you know, they, they interrogated people and tortured them. What, what, what other functions did they have? Es, espionage? What yeah. Just trying to, trying to find out everything about everybody, you know, control. It was like the Russian KGB or then it was called the NKGB. Kind of. Sure. They were responsible for the, all the beating people and the public hangings, anything that was public, that was Kempe Tai doing. Well, not always. I mean, you could have a group of Japanese soldiers that were ticked off as civilian. And as like I said, in the early days, they just chain them up to a lamppost and everybody beats them, you know. But, you know, that goes on everywhere. I, I think that the Japanese and the, the beatings and the torture, most of that takes place at that Fort Santiago. Um, they've got thousands in there all the time. And you've got many, many different people that talk about their introduction to the Kempe Tai there at, at Fort Santiago, where most people don't come out of. It sounds like the secondary function was to just terrorize the population to kind of yeah, sure. beat them into submission. Was that sort of their... Well, yeah, there's a, there's a lot to that psychological effect, you know. How sophisticated were they? Were they well-organized? The reason why I ask is Jim Paulsimon in his interviews said that when he was interrogated, he said they were they were clueless. They they were asking the wrong questions. Yeah, 
there's a lot of that going. That's a lot of that 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 comes from the Americans as well. That talk about being interrogated. It's just like what what are they talking about? You know. Yeah. So they were not as they were scary, but they weren't. As... Well, it depends on who you're dealing with. You know, I mean, you you could have an intelligence officer, total goofball. You know, and then you could have other guys that are very good. You know, it just depends on who you run into. True. True. If I had to pick one theme for 1942, season two, it would be food or the lack thereof. And so would you say that food was one of the central issues for MacArthur and his troops in 1942? No. The Allies moving up towards against the Japanese, no, food was was not really a a problem. I mean, it's probably going to get cold food on the front, but you're getting food. You know, you've got a lot of supply problems that you'll work out during that Bunagona campaign. Um, once they, they do that, then pretty much the rest of the war is going to be, you know, a lot better off than anybody else. Now, food is the main central focus for everybody in the Philippines. I mean, getting food is the is the main thing because you've now cut off farming. You're going to have, a, I think, the 43 crop of rice is going to get destroyed, typhoons, things like that. And then they try to change the rice harvest on Panay to cotton. Um, you're not bringing in Thailand imports anymore. And so everybody's going to start starving by, you know, 45, by the time the Americans come back, uh, you're going to have people starving to death in, in Santa Tomas. Uh, you're going to have them in, in uh, Bilibid. You're going to have them everywhere. And especially in, in Manila, the population's going to start starving to death. And that was MacArthur's main point of having to go back to the Philippines. You know, if we don't go the fat back to the Philippines, when we do go back, you're going to have a million people that die to starvation. And then it's not going to be oh, you came back and blew up the city. It's like you left us here all to die of starvation. So it's a pick your poison. Which one do you want? My thought is maybe there's just no one to grow the food. The men were all Yeah, at war. everybody's leaving the fields and then nobody's tending the fields and the Japanese take over. You know, everybody evacuates to the mountains. Nobody's there. It basically is starving that brings them all back down to the lowlands or brings them back to Manila. You know, it's just because we can't get food up here or wherever they've gone to. And the prisoners depended on getting food from the outside. The question is, at the end of the last uh, the last episode, is is there going to be enough food in 1943 for the prisoners? And I'm saying it's not looking good for them. You got any predictions, Jim? No, I mean, 43 is probably the best time for any prisoners in the Philippines. Yeah, you've gotten over the you know initial shock of surrender. Anybody that was going to die at, at Camp O'Donnell and Cabanatuan is dead. And the thing is, is for at least some of these people, you're going to get a, a Red Cross shipment coming in in 43, which is going to save a, a lot of people. Whereas you got one of those every week in Germany, you got maybe one or two the entire time in Japan, you know, under Japan captivity. So 43 will look, I think, a little bit better than most of the other times, but it's still dismal. We'll see what happens in season three with Natalie. Well, thank you for sharing your expertise with the Forbidden Diary listeners, Jim. If any of you out there want to dive deeper into this period of history, the MacArthur Memorial has a fantastic library of podcasts about MacArthur and his times. Could you tell me about your podcast series? Uh, yes. MacArthur serves in many different eras you know he's in world war one he's in world war two occupation of japan korea and uh so we have podcasts about basically everything our world war one podcast is one of the top ones there is 
and we have a vast clientele. You know, anybody coming out with a new book that deals with something that's going on in the Pacific or Korea, anything like that, we'll we'll try to get them on a on a podcast. And you can get all those through our website at www.macarthurmemorial.org as well. They're all on iTunes. And so you can go there as well. You can go see all the films we've made on YouTube. We have our own channel there and uh, you can find uh, hundreds, hundreds. What do you search on for YouTube? Just go to MacArthur Memorial and we have our, our own channel. And even better, if you can out there, go see the POW exhibit at the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial in Norfolk, Virginia. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. And many thanks, many thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you all in 1943. Be sure to tune in for the next episode of Forbidden Diary.